As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Hello there, thanks for tuning in this week to the Athletic Football Tactics Podcast. It is our penultimate episode of 2023. I'm Ali Maxwell with three wise men. Oh, wow, I'm here with three men. Michael Cox, <laughs> Liam Tharm and Mark Carey. Hi guys. Hello. Wow. Hi. Shout out to Gavin B for the idea behind this week's topic. Almost every week I put a call out to the listeners. I say tweet us, I say comment on the episode page. On the Athletic app, we'd love to hear your ideas for future episodes. And it's not an empty request. It's not engagement for engagement's sake. Sometimes the the wind turbines of our minds <laughs> need a little backup generator for ideas. Uh, and that's what we got this week. But Gavin's idea is this. Prior to the 2000s, there seemed to be a clear formula to chasing a game. For the last five minutes, put your centre back up and go long. Nowadays, the way teams chase games is much more varied. What are the options for how to chase a game? Which options are best? And how much risk should you be willing to take as the clock ticks down? It's perfect for us. It's really interesting. So let's chop it up. Michael, kick us off here. What are the options when you're down and you're chasing a game? Well, I'm interested in his uh, timeline or his chronology because I think that still happens quite a lot. I think that was the default much later than the 2000s as well, even for quite technical players. I mean, I remember... Uh, that famous 2009 Champions League semi-final between Barcelona and Inter. Barcelona putting Gerard Piquet up front mm. late on after they'd taken off uh, Zlatan Ibrahimovic. And Piquet scored a wonderful goal where he kind of spun two players in the six-yard box and finished. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I mean, I think it's a really good topic, but I still think putting a centre-back up is quite a big part of it. I wonder if there's a growing trend now of central defenders being more about being ball players and not really being the early dominant players or that style. It's a big coaching aspect of this, right? If it's not always just going to be about the the player and the the personnel, but I imagine there's certain coaches that just really despise that idea of the chaos and the control that you lose. And you then also get into the situation where the similar thing is the optimal thing of the really chasing the game is like the final corner when you send the goalkeeper up and certain coaches seem to never do it even if it's like it's final kick of the game do you just not want them there because 
they're just not that great a finisher. And then you go, okay, what's the purpose of them being there? Is it to, you know, try and cause chaos? Is it to have another defender that's then marking them to hopefully free up someone elsewhere? Um, and I guess, yeah, it's just what players do you want in what position? So it's a, it's a great spectacle to watch, but I see that the tactical sort of conundrum it throws up. We often talk about most of the elite managers being obsessed with control. And a lot of them are, whether it's possession-based or otherwise, quite dogmatic in the way that they approach the game tactically. Michael, is there an extent to which maybe the modern manager feels more so than in previous generations that chucking up a centre-back is almost like admitting defeat? Their game plan wasn't good enough, isn't working, and they almost don't want to admit that. Yeah, that's interesting. Maybe there is part of that uh, involved. I'd like to give a shout-out to the Lionesses and Millie Bright in particular because she's become such a specialist at this She's a centre-back, of course, and she's become such a specialist at being a plan B up front that when she went out injured, there was almost more chat about who's going to be England's plan B as much as who's going to play in central defence instead of her because England had worked on it. They practised it in in uh, friendly tournaments and in the Euros last year against Spain, it worked to great effect. Um, so, yeah, there's still I think there's still a, a big case for doing that. At the same time, I think a lot of traditional centre-forwards are now almost regarded as purely plan Bs. I mean, if you've got a player in your team that's purely good in the air, a proper target man, they're not usually going to be playing for the top clubs, even the kind of sides battling relegation. You don't see that many type of those players. I mean, even someone like, off the top of my head, Kiefer Moore uh, down at Bournemouth. You know, maybe 10 years ago, a player like that would be a starting number nine in the Premier League, but even he's regarded as a plan B for a side like Bournemouth. I know Bournemouth are playing quite technical football. I mean, especially with five subs available and nine on the bench now. Teams often do have that kind of player in reserve to bring on for the last 20 minutes or so. I think you made a good point, Ali, about the sort of the tactical intelligence of managers nowadays. And that's not to say that they weren't intelligent before and they were just randomly throwing centre-backs at the sort of at the death of the, the game. But I think it's now more on the, the onus is on the managers to identify where there are weaknesses in the opposition and rather than it just be a centre-back kind of your most obvious change it to be like well potentially there's there's maybe overloads to be had in the wide areas we've got a weakness in the opposition fullback and we can overload we can double up against them and maybe get into wide areas and, and cross from there or, or cut back or whatever it is. I think you've also got to look at the perspective and whenever you start doing it in the game well what then happens if if that succeeds and that works and there's a great example at the World Cup where uh, it was Netherlands uh, against Argentina where Netherlands were 2-0 down, brought on Veghorst and Luke de Jong off the bench, which were two very much, two big guys, two guys to cross it to. Um, and they then recovered it to 2 all and went into extra time. And I remember watching it in the office and saying, well, how on earth do they attack now? I'm like, <laughs> you've got to play 30 minutes where you've got two players that you'd brought on with the intention of doing just this. But, you know, for the style that they'd played when I watched them in, in the Nations League and in the build-up to the World Cup of trying to play this quite stylish back three, and lots of crazy midfielders and, and really sort of advancing wing-backs, I'm like, <laughs> you now almost have to prepare for, okay, well, if this works and we get what we want, do we go back to plan A? Is there a plan C, et cetera, et cetera? It's, um, I guess it's as much about avoiding the panic that can then sort of ensue from that because it, it feels like quite a reactive strategy and I wonder as a, as a defending team if someone does it against you do you think well this this is it they've got nothing else left it's you know if they then start shooting from distance you go they're running out of ideas that it's probably the hardest thing to defend against but it's can become the most predictable I think because you go okay we know we're just going to face balls into the box now if we've got a keeper that can come and claim stuff defenders that can clear it every single time we get it away we go okay that's another win. 
And I think that's the good thing about just doing it with a centre-back. Centre-back can go back to defence again without wanting to labour the Millie Bright point. That was exactly what happened against Spain in the Euros last year. Went up front for 10 minutes, helped get the equaliser and then just went back and England shifted back to a back four. So that's the, the value of it. If there's extra time, obviously that's, uh, you know, if it's a 90-minute game, it's not really going to be an issue, but extra time, absolutely. Mark, we're in an era where so many different and precise aspects of the game have had like scientific studies done on them. And I wonder if it's possible or whether it has been done to run the numbers on the decision to go long, so to speak, whether it's with a centre-back or with a... I always think of Fernando Llorente when I think of the sort of plan B big striker versus continuing with plan A, making plan A better, whether that be a more, you know, continuing with a more patient build-up approach to try and work openings, even if it seems a little slower to do so. I mean, I presented the idea just now that it's some sort of personal reason managers don't want to look like their tactical plan has failed, but there's every chance and probably more likely that they've crunched the numbers and it's been worked out that that's actually maybe not the smart play. Yeah, I haven't seen any kind of academic studies or research to, to kind of do this. But I think, again, it speaks to the, the strength and the tactical discipline of the manager to, as we say, plan B almost sounds kind of defeatist, but it's not so much going to plan B other than having a tactical playbook that you can call upon depending on the different scenarios. And I think we'd be, I, I'd certainly be naive to assume that they don't already do that. So maybe they'd roll the ball into onto the pitch during training and say, okay, you're you're playing a 4-3-3, you're losing 2-1, you've got 10 minutes to go. How can we how can we approach this game? How can we do these sorts of things? So yes, I'm sure they have probably crunched the numbers, but they've also done their due diligence in the modern game to be able to ensure that the team is prepared for it and it's less kind of instinctive on the fly and it's a no stone unturned in a similar way to ensure that you can you can get the outcome that you want knowing you've prepared for it, I suppose. Yeah, I think building on our penalties pod as well and that when we speak about the psychological aspect of that, this is something you can try and train, but then there is a difference between being on a training ground on a on a Tuesday afternoon where there's not loads of fans around. Like you can't you can't perfectly recreate it. There's that great clip of Arteta before um Arsenal goes to Anfield where he, you know, he plays the you never walk alone music. Um hmm. And that's trying to find a way, but it's it's a really imperfect thing to to try and train. And I guess it's the footballing equivalent. So I guess the Hail Mary in NFL, right? That you're saying, okay, if this comes off, because theoretically then people say, why don't you just play this way the whole game? If this is what you do when you really need to score. Well, it's like, you keep you keep doing this and if it works and it comes off, then you know, you're almost guaranteed to score. But every time it doesn't, well, then that becomes a big problem because you're turning over the ball all the time. And uh, the Newcastle game last night, um, against Milan comes to mind and I know that they this is a great example because they were chasing a game even though they were drawing because they needed the win um, but they had a couple of instances where they just don't defend the transition very well their their rest defence looks a bit too wide a bit too stretched so by rest defence we mean where the players are stood defenders specifically uh, when the team's in attack so where they're positioned to try and then pounce on uh, to you know, defend loose balls defend counter attacks and maybe they get to the ball first and then they they miskick the clearance or they don't recycle the ball well. Uh, Rafael gets in one-on-one -on -one and hits the post with a good chance. And then there's a similar transition. Um, the Liao chance comes from, I think, a cross that gets cleared away. Um, and then there's a situation where Fabian Scher actually goes on the overlap and he's out of position. Uh, and Annie McCoy's in commentary actually, as it's going on, goes, oh no, Scher's out of position here and they break and they end up scoring. So 
it's being prepared to, I think, lose the game in trying to win it. And there's, I guess, some coaches that just aren't prepared to do that at certain times. I also think having going back to the original point of having your centre back go into the box and just kind of getting crosses or playing long balls is actually the least optimal. The share one was actually interesting from from the Newcastle game because he was trying to commit and run run off the ball and on the ball to sort of get bodies into a typical sequence of play to try and work the ball into a more lucrative area rather than a fast track into the box where typically it's a congested area where nearly 22 players are in one third of the pitch where it's it's suboptimal to, to do it that way and be so so direct I'd argue that if, if it's like that you need to get the ball more into wide areas and get crosses in there are so many different ways to kind of go for that Hail Mary and I think that to just assume it's the it's the centre-back just going, getting on the end of crosses isn't so good. I think, as Liam said, it's more being prepared to to leave gaps behind you, whether that's midfield runners just like maybe camping out in the box a little bit more, knowing that there's there's a risk-taking element here. And then, as you say, they might get caught on the break, as Newcastle did uh, last night. Still running, Cher. Good defending by Calabria. He's out of possession. No, he's out of possession. Here come Milan. Jovic. Played on here. Oh, it's a goal. It's Chukwesi off the bench. Super sub for Milan. Brilliant finish into the top corner. And it could be a heartbreaker in Europe for Newcastle. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer, if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Michael, how did we get to the point where the phrase plan B conjures up such a specific image of putting a tall player, centre-back or sub-striker in the middle and putting in more crosses into the box. You know, I think of Fernando Llorente as an example, but why does it need to mean that? When did that happen? Is this Spurs era, Llorente? Yes. Thinking about? Yeah. Because um, he also did it for, for Spain in 2010. It's Portugal, I think. Well, I was going to yeah. ask if this is a specifically British thing, whether in continental Europe and the specifics of each nation having their own identity, is do they also put a big striker up top and swing in crosses historically? That is a good question, actually. I guess they do. I remember doing a piece on this um, a couple of years ago where Barcelona, you mentioned Piquet before, Barcelona were doing it quite a lot. And Stoke were playing some fantastic football at that time. And I remember the piece being, have Stoke become Barcelona and Barcelona become Stoke? Right. So I think, it, it, yeah, it's not uncommon for it to happen on, on the continent. It's funny you bring up Stoke and Barcelona because uh, I was talking to someone the other day. I think they were talking about Sheffield Wednesday. Their new manager is quite often playing four natural centre-backs and he said Pep-esque playing of four centre-backs <laughs> and I said it's only three years since that was considered Tony Pulis' yeah. thing was playing as many centre-backs as you could and now it's considered a Pep Guardiola thing. Fascinating. 
Yeah, I mean, on the plan B thing, I guess that's plan B in terms of an overall strategy rather than individual kind of combinations of players. Because really, if we talk about a centre-back or a backup striker coming on for the last 15 minutes, it's probably like plan D at highest. Do you know what I mean? Like, you've probably used substitutes before that point. You might change system. So, yeah, there's a long way you have to go these days before you get to just playing you know, longer balls and putting a, a really airily dominant player up there. But what I think teams have got better at these days is I feel like maybe 20 years ago, if you brought on that kind of player, you just play balls like from your centre-back, just like hoof forward towards the box. And they never work. Like defenders, if, if you're, you know, if you've got probably five, you know, teams always revert to like a back five, often five good players in the air. You're never going to be troubled by that. But if teams get the ball out wide and then put crosses in, I think that's going to cause a lot more problems. And it kind of goes back to what Liam said about, well, why don't you play that way at the start? I mean, crossing the ball from wide is a perfectly legitimate tactic. Hoofing it from centre-back towards centre-forward, it doesn't really work, does it? So I think teams have become a bit more intelligent with how they do that. Plan B or plan E or plan F or whatever. And that all feeds into the, the sheer volume of opposition analysis now is that's what part of it is for. It's not just like we want to know what this team does on a basic level. It will be, OK, if they're going 1-0 up, 2-0 up, 1-0 down, 2-0 down, etc. That, you know, you hear the manager say in press conferences, we've prepared for every sort of situation. And that will be what that work is. Of It's a weird because you want to prepare for it, but you don't really ever want to actually have to use the plan because you want to be in control and in a position where that's OK. So, yeah, I, I think... It's, it can be hard to notice a lot, but subs will definitely come after you've already tried to, to make tweaks, whether that will be system or at times switching players around, even more minute stuff yeah, in terms of how you build up and, and your approach there. Um, I think you can get it at set pieces where you might try something different on the third or fourth set piece. That's, uh, yeah, subs have to be way down the list. I was going to say as well, it's, it's an obvious point to make, but it is worth noting that you do have more opportunity and more time to be able to do plan B, C and D, for example, because of the, the sheer volume of time that's been sort of added on with uh, Nick Miller did a piece on this um, fairly recently and the average amount of added time uh, per game. So the first and the second half uh, combined mostly hovered somewhere between six minutes and, and seven minutes, six and a half, let's, uh, let's say, for the 10 seasons before this one. And last season, it was closer to eight minutes. So it was on the increase. And this season, and this is slightly outdated data, but it's in double figures. It's about 11 minutes. So even that, when you're thinking about chasing the game, a couple of minutes is quite crucial to be added on to maybe just try something different and then maybe go for the Hail Mary, really go for broke if you really want to just lump it into the box. There's so much more opportunity. And I think you're kind of seeing it in the demeanor of the, the players, maybe not so much the manager, the demeanor of the players to actually still continue to play football when it's the 89th minute because in theory they've still got about 11 minutes to go mm. rather than you start to normally see a bit of panic of, of you know playing it a little bit longer. Um, it's quite clear that this has started to change now. Yeah. All, all I was going to add was we speak about now like the role of analysis in, in shaping this. I could be wrong, but from some of the reading that I've done, a lot of the reason for a lot of the direct play in, in sort of the, the very late 90s, particularly in English football in the early 2000s, is rooted in Charles Reap and Charles Hughes, right? And the research that was done there, the early sort of data analysis and, you know, findings that more goals are scored from sort of playing direct and playing long, accessing those positions of maximum opportunity. So they were doing what they thought was right at the time and mm -hmm. the managers are now. And we could probably have this discussion in five, 10 years time where they're doing even more different things and the rules look even more different now um, because there'll be more, you hope, more in-depth and more nuanced sort of data analysis that finds even more ways of, of playing effectively. 
let's try and drill down and, and pick out some specifics here. I mean, uh, Michael, are there any incidences other than that Barcelona PK performance of teams doing something innovative or interesting or notably effective when chasing a game? Um, one that stands out is Chelsea PSG in 2014 when Chelsea were managed by Jose Mourinho. And they ended up playing with three out-and-out strikers, Eto, Barr, who eventually got the win, and Fernando Torres. And it just struck me as really effective because I think a lot of the time when teams end up with three strikers, they just get in each other's way. Like, there's just too many players in the box. I remember Arsenal, when they were trailing in European competitions, always used to bring in uh, Kanu as an extra centre forward. And he just, like, wasn't suited to it. He got, in, he got in other players' way. Everything became about just playing long balls to him. And this, I mean, Chelsea played in this game. I think in the end, it was almost a front four with Schürrle on the left. It was just really effective. Clearly, Mourinho, well, I think the players said afterwards they'd worked on it on training. They'd worked on, you know, 80 minutes they did that, eight, 85 minutes they were going to do that. They had a very precise plan. And one of the subs, Denver Barr, came up with the, the winning goal. So I think managers have just, they have got more of a game plan. They have got more options. They know precisely what they're going to do. I don't think they're thinking on their feet. And they're not just shoving on an extra striker and saying, go on, play up front. The formation around them adjusts. And I know that sounds an obvious thing, but I think if you go back 20, 25 years, it was a little bit random and a little bit chaotic. I always like to go into the, the athletic archives for, for when we're doing a podcast and see what we've maybe written about it already. Um, and I found one called The Premier League's Greatest Tactical Substitutions. I thought, this is, this is perfect. Uh, do you know the writer, the author of this piece? Yeah, it was... It was me. It was you. Yeah. <laughs> it was you. It was, this was one of the reader's requests thing. Was it? Yeah. Can you remember the, the games that you referred to? And people are demanding this analysis. Gavin, <laughs> readers of the of the site. Was this another Gavin B? This is what the people back want. A few years later. He's, Doesn't he's, specify. It was Villa Arsenal in 98 was one of Brilliant them. Brilliant shout. Yes. Um, I can't remember the others. It was uh, Spurs against Arsenal. Harry Redknapp bringing on Jermaine Defoe for Aaron Lennon. You know, I did just think that. And then I got confused with another memory, which is... <laughs> sitting next to Harry Redknapp at a dinner once and mentioning that game to him and he had no recollection of it at all <laughs> so I couldn't remember whether that was before or after that that's incredible that article. well there's that one and Roberto Mancini bringing on Nigel de Jong for Sammy Nasri uh, when City yes. beat Newcastle 2-0 so that was a good one because they were 0-0 he brought on a holding midfielder de Jong for Nasri a playmaker but then pushed Yaya Torre forward which was his that was his plan B. So that's quite a good example of an obvious plan B that wasn't just, you know, playing long balls. And of course, Torres scored two crucial goals. What are Liverpool doing so well on this front? They stand out in terms of their record coming from behind. This season, they've been behind 10 times already. Quite a lot, I would say, for a team expected to, to win almost every game. They've equalised nine times out of 10, obviously losing just the once. That's the best record this season. But last year as well, Mark, Newcastle, Arsenal and Liverpool had the best equalising rate, that the highest percentage of games successfully chased, for want of a better phrase. Yeah, I mean, the Liverpool example, certainly this season, I think probably worth noting that quite a few of those have been kind of early on. So when they've, they've equalised or taken the lead, it's been they've had a lot of opportunities to do so. And it speaks to the point that I said before of against the... Well, for more of the elite teams against the weaker teams, they have, you almost don't want to wake up the beast and you, you, the earlier you maybe score against them, the more they sort of kick into into gear a little bit. I think the Liverpool one's interesting um, in terms of their their approach. Um, I mentioned before about the, in my mind, the optimal way against a, 
a team who's maybe gone ahead and maybe sitting in more of a deeper block. For Liverpool, I think one of their key challenges has been actually getting the ball wide. What was previously their strength, they don't get wide quite as much now. Their, their volume of crosses in open play has, has gone down dramatically for reasons that we've spoken about already with Trent Alexander-Arnold um, playing more narrow. But I looked into the, to the numbers and I looked at the, how often they crossed the ball in open play per 100 touches when they were winning and when they were losing. So when they were in a winning game state, they crossed the ball just 0.8 times per 100 touches. When they were behind, that number leaps up to two times per 100 touches. So more than double when we're talking about the inclination to get it wide and cross. So I think, well, the example being most recently against Crystal Palace, their equaliser granted against 10 men was to get the ball into an overload on the right-hand side, cross it, and then they sort of picked up something of a, a second ball and it was a deflected finish. But it shows that obviously when you're, chasing the game we said about rather than those sort of vertical balls um from sort of back to front to get the ball into wide areas and there's more of an inclination for a side to cross the ball and and obviously equalize or go ahead see i think this is really interesting because we focused a lot on the target in the middle whether it's a tall striker or a center back but how about having trent alexander arnold you know if you're going to resort to crossing or make that your plan b c d well, what a difference it makes to have the best crosser in the world <laughs> providing the, the service rather than playing long straight balls or having fullbacks who aren't as natural in terms of delivering doing that. And it makes complete sense to, to go around the block if you're going to be playing against a deep block when you're chasing the game, then, then go directly through it because that's arguably the most optimal way to try and equalise. It's where the spaces are isn't, right? And yeah, when teams start to compact that central area. So that the one golden thread I'd really say in terms of player profiles that runs through Newcastle, Arsenal, Liverpool looking back to last season is their, their wingers or their wide midfielders they've all got players that play inverted so on the opposite side to their, to their dominant foot that can go 1v1 can go on the outside can shoot from distance because at times I think back to was it Saka in the game against Manchester United where as good as you can be tactically, sometimes you need a player to smash one in from 20 yards <laughs> to open the game up a bit again. It's not always the prettiest goals that you score and it's been the same for Liverpool when you know they've done a lot of that this season of actually you know not only coming back but doing it with a man down and we've again we've done a whole podcast mm -hmm. on that so people can listen to that but um yeah i think it's it's having that quality sometimes make the space and, and cause problems um so i think having those players can really end up splitting games open sometimes and it could potentially drag the center back across if you're creating an overload in a wide area and it's a two-on-one on the fullback then the center back's got to come across then everyone's got to shuffle over then you create space elsewhere as i say rather than just the game being in front of all of the the back four back five whatever by playing more deeper balls into the into the box and crossing from from less lucrative areas, should we say. You're listening to the Athletic Football Tactics Podcast. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. 
Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. So it's become clear that you can change your tactics or you can decide not to do that. But what else can you change? Well, personnel. And these days you can change more of your team than ever before. Half of your outfield players, if you so wish. Let's talk about substitutes or, Michael, finishers. Game changers. <laughs> um, you sometimes can be a bit of a Scrooge about things like new phrasing for stuff. Where do you stand on substitutes being renamed finishers? Well, he just said inverted wingers. I famously invented that. I mean... Yeah, and um, holding the ball and then giving it to your teammate at the last minute to take the penalty. You invented that too. Well, that, just, that needs a shorter name, but it's, <laughs> it's a bit too long. Dug it up from the archives. No, I mean, finishers mean something different, doesn't it? If you say he's a really good finisher... That means he's really good at scoring chances. So I just, you know, if if we want a phrase for, I don't know, Edin Dzeko or Javier Hernandez going back a few years as a great plan B, I just don't think he's a great finisher. That can mean two different things. Would be so. a better one. Game ender. It obviously just contrasts nicely from starter and finisher, doesn't it? It's, I guess, why it's... Right. But I, I, it does become possibly problematic as, as terminology because people can easily confuse I it. So I don't think there's footballers getting confused what their manager means when he says we need you to be a real finisher for us today the easy way to do it is to come off the bench and score loads of goals and then just you mean both things don't you so you could uh i i think the word itself isn't the, the principal point really is it it's the it's the acceptance of the open-mindedness to say <laughs> motivated what's rather wrong, than like you've been chucked on the bench and jettisoned there's, what's wrong with super sub that's a lovely yeah place. there's there's yeah, but they can't all but you can't have five super subs otherwise it loses its then no one's instantly. yeah it, i guess it's more the principle of like it's it's not what the word means it's about saying okay we're open-minded to the point that you can have a really significant and important role where you come on and you you impact games. It's kind of like another American football example. It's like the kicker, right, that comes on or the special teams that come on. And your role isn't to play 90 minutes, it's to come on and have a specific impact. Um, so I guess, yeah, it's call it what you want. I guess it doesn't really matter. It's being open-minded to having players that can play a very specific, albeit shortened role. Game changer. I don't mind that. I'm tempted to say let's all be grown-ups and just call it call them substitutes. But I'm also less flippantly and facetiously aware, Mark, that this is probably one consequence of the increased analysis in the game and over the last 10, 15 years, uh, trying to do things a little differently, trying to do things better. This is more about messaging to your players and it's more of a probably motivational thing than anything else. Yeah, and it's a psychological thing. I think that there's been a greater appreciation of psychology within sport more broadly and football more specifically in recent years. It obviously speaks to to my background, so I'm really interested in that side of things. But also the again that no stone unturned approach of learning from different sports and you know Liam you mentioned American football I think that the the finisher phrase has been taken from Eddie Jones talking about it a lot in in rugby so I know that might be to, to Michael's dismay but I, I think that it's it's learning from different sports different disciplines I know that Gareth Southgate's gone to train hasn't he got the England squad to train with the army in the past and just you know what I mean learning about the sort of the impact Good of different backgrounds and how you can actually do that. I know that Jurgen Klopp has worked with in pre-season training, someone who was, um, I think, an underwater diver and how long you can push your body to the limits, all these different things to to instill more kind of psychological confidence, more robustness and more resilience. And it's not just 
about using psychology to improve a player's performance, Mark, but there's a lot of science and analysis that goes into things like substitutions and how to get the best out of them. Yeah, and I, I looked into, as I always like to look at, the you know, previous research that's that's been done, more kind of at the... The physical level, I think. I looked at something that was done by um, a lab, Lab Ali, Lab in Spain yeah. rather than the Spanish lads, um, <laughs> looking at <laughs> behaviours of um, teams. It was from the 2019-20 uh, season where they had just three substitutions and the 2020-21 season where they had the five substitutions for the first time in La Liga. Um, and basically total running distance was similar across both of those uh, seasons, but the, the running distance at higher speeds were more prevalent in the five substitution um, season. So it, it speaks to Liam's point before that it shows that the, the pace of the game is able to be kind of sustained for longer with this, this new format now that we've got five substitutions. And I guess that can be positive from a, an attacking and a defensive perspective because you could have more concentration in, in both sides and then it's still kind of whoever has the stronger resilience comes out on top, but it, the, the game is faster for longer. And obviously as a consequence, we're having more entertainment. Always love the work those muchachos are doing to help <laughs> us understand the game a little bit better. Michael, when it comes to, to subs and using subs, the thing that I always find most interesting is this battle, if you like, between on the one side, fresh legs being needed, players who are not fatigued, who maybe will be up against an opposite man who is fatigued and therefore you get the benefit of that versus what you often hear as well, which is a lot of changes can actually disrupt the flow of the game and coherence can be affected in a negative way rather than getting the positives of an injection of, of fresh legs and high performance. I mean, is there any, is there really an answer to that discussion or is that just one that will always go on? Well, what I think is interesting is that managers are almost incentivized to use more subs than they need because they've only got a certain number of windows to make them so you don't want to make three subs at three separate windows because then you you feel like you're missing out mm. so i think managers tend to make double subs even if maybe if they don't really want to just because you feel you have to and of course if there's players who are just sitting on the bench for the 90 minutes who don't get on they start to get aggrieved so yeah it is quite a tricky balance i kind of agree with maybe what you're implying which is that teams become a bit disorganized and things become a bit chaotic when you change so many players. I mean, people used to hate those international friendlies when teams could change, you know, the whole team. We're halfway there in normal league games with five subs now, which feels quite weird to me. There's a great example, going back to the World Cup again, uh, Spain against Germany, where they both started with a quote-unquote sort of false nine or not a not a box presence so Spain had Asensio uh, as a false nine in there their 4-3-3 uh, Germany had Müller up top uh, in their 4-2-3-1 both brought on one of the quote-unquote big lads so Spain brought on Avaro Morata um, early into the second half uh, Germany brought on Fulkrug later on and both players scored after coming on but it became a second half where it gone from being very cagey quite attritional and very balanced not really many chances to a game that just completely opened up because both teams then suddenly couldn't really hold the ball very well um, they had presences going forward but there wasn't as much sort of sustained possession because they weren't having that midfielder drop in and making those overloads and, and being neat and connecting the play it's as much about what you're prepared to to lose and give up as what you want to have and I guess there's just as we've said before like there's certain coaches that just don't want to lose control of the game in that way and one truism that is still as far as I can tell broadly true is that managers are, are loath to change their defenders compared to midfielders and attacking players let's look at the most used subs in the Premier League this season and I think it's a really nice split because Harvey Elliott 
Pierre Hoybier, Yuri Tielemans have all been brought on 12 times. Uh, Jacob Brunlas in 11, and then 10 times Adebayo of Luton, João Pedro, Sasha Kalajic, Jean-Philippe Mateta, Oliver Skip, and Chris Wood. So there you have four, four meaty strikers, <laughs> right? Adebayo, Kalajic, Mateta, and Chris Wood. You've got three midfielders who, who at their best, bring control. So Hoybier, Skip, Tielemans. And then you've got a couple in, in Elliot and Larson of attacking midfield, sort of wide types that you hope might provide a bit of extra quality in the in the half spaces in particular. It's a, it's a nice spread, but no defenders to be seen. No, you very rarely get that. Um, I can think of one example, um, going back to similar to what Mike was mentioning about uh, with Manchester City before, that uh, Graham Potter away to West Ham uh, when he was Brighton head coach made a switch where they were they were 3-1 down in the second half and he brought on brought on wing backs and changed to um, a, I think a 3-4-3 from a 4-2-3-1 or something and, and ended up getting back into the game and the equaliser came from from across from out wide from a midfielder putting wide so yeah you, you very rarely get that and I guess I wonder if that's because by the time it comes to bringing on your your forwards or your strikers it's a case of well we've we've tried the, the tactical plan b and plan c we've tried the shape change or we've tried moving these players and attacking differently and it's now okay we've we've kind of got to resort to this a little bit we've had big contributions from trossard from leon bailey harvey elliott of course last weekend joel pedro stands out he has scored four goals off the bench this season uh i think a couple of them penalties uh, interestingly when we look at managers and, and trends we have at extreme ends Pep Guardiola and Roberto De Zerbi, which is quite nice. So Pep, only three teams have made fewer changes this season than Man City. And City's subs get the fewest minutes on the pitch on average. Has he always been someone that's not that fussed about switching up his team? I don't know if always, but certainly at City, it's often been a pattern. He's rarely used them. I mean, he so originally the five subs thing came in for COVID and then the Premier League went back to three subs. And Guardiola complained quite a lot about that. But ironically, maybe, was the manager who used the fewest amount of subs and often went through a game and didn't use any at all. So, yeah, he has been quite cautious with his use of, of changes. Yeah, I looked into it across the, the previous four seasons and City have made either the fewest or the second fewest subs per game um, on average in the Premier League. So, yeah, it does speak to that. I think it's been most interesting or salient when they have been needing to chase the game or at least score a goal and he still hasn't done it. He's kind of doubled down because I guess he's asking his players, to, he's trusting his players and asking them to fulfil, almost out of anger, you set out to, to fulfil this game plan, go out there and do it. I shouldn't have to be changing things for you. Yeah. Well, that's at least the impression that I've got. But um, the one of the memorable ones was last season. Of course, they won the Champions League, but against RB Leipzig, and I think it was the first leg and there was still time to obviously come back into it. But I think people were querying why he didn't make a, a single substitution when they, they drew 1-1 away at Leipzig. And I remember one a couple of seasons ago now against Crystal Palace and it was a nil-nil draw. And again, people were lamenting him for, for not making any substitutions. And he just chose to, to double down and just say that that, that, that was the team that I, I asked to go and fulfill that game plan and it's up to them to, to do it. So I don't know if it's just a, a Guardiola sort of way of being stubborn sometimes to, to make sure that he sort of lets the players know that. We know he often changes between games rather than within. But uh, yeah, in stark contrast to, to Roberto De Zerbi. De Zerbi's obsessed with substitutions, Liam. Uh, they make 4.75 changes a game and their average substitute plays 25 minutes, the longest on average uh, of any team in the league. Some of that has been injury-induced. I think there's been knocks of players have picked up in games, particularly forwards. Um, 
but he's also made a few half-time changes as well. I think the time's double subs. Um, again, in part because Brighton, I think, gone 1-0 down or conceded first a lot more this season than what they did last season. They, they had a better habit of, of scoring first or going ahead earlier in games. So I think he's then found a case of, okay, they have just been chasing a game more. And I guess his way of adapting that, responding to that um, in, in the way that he wants to play is adding on another forward. Um, the times he'll often do like-for-like like swaps, I think, the, the best way that he's he's actually made changes this season was was away to Marseille, um, where they, they were 2-0 down, I think about half an hour into the game or 20 minutes into the game. Uh, and the first thing he did really was actually tweak the tactics. He went from um, his sort of narrow sort of 4-4-2, if you like, where uh, he's got the number nine sort of coming off and playing alongside the 10. And he went to a 4-3-3 because they were getting man-marked on, on the last line and stuff was going into the, the two strikers and things just weren't sticking. So he went to, to, went to a single pivot and then brought on Billy Gilmore because he's the best player they've got to play in that role specifically. And suddenly they could then get two number eights to make a front five. And it was front five against the back four. Couldn't man mark as well. And, and they did better. And you know the, the rest. Third. You do. Rest is history, as they say. Just bringing the two together of Man City and Brighton, I've looked at the, the game state and the share of time in each game state. Man City just 9% uh, of the time in a losing game state, which is the fewest of anyone in the Premier League. Brighton, 35%. Um, so only Luton, Burnley and Sheffield United have spent more time in a losing game state. So it speaks to making substitutions maybe out of necessity as much as anything. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much, guys, for putting so much thought into uh, things like how to chase a game and what to do with your allotted substitutions. Uh, it's been uh, great fun this week on the Athletic Football Tactics podcast. So shout out Gavin B for the idea. Thanks also to Prasanna and Caleb uh, for their suggestions on the Athletic app. There is a specific page for this podcast and for each episode as well you can comment on what we've spoken about today and suggest future topics to do so you'll need to be a subscriber of the athletic so join today theathletic.com forward slash tactics is where you should go to get a discount on your annual subscription and do join us please next week of all weeks as we wave goodbye to 2023 for the last pod of the year thanks for listening go well the athletic <laughs>